scripture reading for uh, the talk this morning comes from Genesis chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 16. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. You will no longer be called exalted father, Abram. You will be called Abraham, the father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give to you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old, must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And, Abraham, and God also said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, but Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. The kings of people will come from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Covenants about promise. It's about making and keeping promises. And I have to realize as I reflect on my own life, uh, the broken promises, the failures that have been part and parcel to my life. The son of an alcoholic father, the son of a bipolar mother, the last child of my father's second marriage, the last child of my mother's third marriage, I was never good enough. I couldn't lift enough weights. I couldn't sack enough quarterbacks. I couldn't make enough A's. I was always going to be the son of a drunk and a crazy lady. And there was nothing I could do about that. There was no promise I could make to be a better person. There was no promise my parents could keep to build a better life. 
We lived in the midst of broken and ruined relationships. Church became for me as a teenager a welcomed respite. Some young people, some young people get back at their parents by not going to church anymore. Oh, not me. (laughs) I got back at my parents by going to church. And the church became a welcoming place in the margins. Nominal, partial acceptance. You're a pretty good guy. If you'll only be a little bit better. you only do a little bit more. And I kept getting the message that if I could just learn a little bit more about how to be a faithful disciple, if I could just be a nicer person, if I could just learn to get along, life would be pretty good. People would love me. They didn't. Because I couldn't. And life has been for me in these 58 years a long stretch of just figuring out how broken I really am. I am an eternal silver medal winner. Nobody likes silver medals. Especially Canadian women hockey players, apparently. (laughs) But nobody likes silver. Who remembers silver medal winners? Who thinks, oh, silver medal in the Olympics, that's what I'm going for. How many commentators are just crestfallen and heartbroken when the best new figure skater heartthrob in their triple sow-cow missteps a fraction of an inch and ends up with the silver medal? I don't know about you, but I'd kill for a silver medal. I'm a, I'm a I'm a silver medal winner in the game of life. We live in the midst of promises unkept. Promises that we can't keep. Promises that weren't kept for us. We live lives full of failure. Number one cause of death right now of men in their 50s in America is suicide. Because they're looking at their lives after 50 years and saying, the heck has the point been? Why have I been doing this? We live lives as silver medal winners at best. We hope. And we know we're going to miss the quad axle leap and not win the gold medal we thought was ours. There are promises we can't keep and promises that haven't been kept to us. And that's our world, that's our lives. 
wow, is the pastor depressing today or what? (laughs) No, I think there is embedded in that realization gospel for us. There is good news when we realize that we are not all gold medal winners. That we are probably none of us gold medal winners. Because God speaks in times of failure. The Abraham story is a story of God constantly coming to Abraham in the midst of and because of failure. We think of Abraham as this great giant of the faith, this guy who's got it all put together, the father of many nations. Abraham was the biggest screw-up in Scripture. This story in Genesis 17 is sandwiched between two massive failures on the part of Abraham. In his quest for legacy, he and Sarah turn to Hagar and say, well, let's have a child through Hagar. She looks pretty fertile. Maybe she, maybe she can bear us the child of promise and covenant. And Abraham literally takes matters into his own hands and Ishmael is born. Not the child of the covenant. Oops. Massive failure in the quest for legacy. On the other side of this story, you would think, oh, Yahweh El Shaddai has come and delivered covenant. All will be well from here. Eh, Wrong answer. Thank you for playing. Abraham and Lot square off in chapter 18 and 19. And Abraham loses his extended family. If not actually, in the case of his niece-in-law, Lot's wife, turning into a pillar of salt that gruesome morning outside of Sodom, he certainly loses Lot, his nephew, his protege, the closest thing he has to biological family. He loses him in the days after trying to rescue him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. On either side of this covenantal breakthrough in Abraham's life is failure. Failure in his quest for legacy. Failure in his quest to hold family together. Abraham's life is one failure after another, punctuated by visits from God saying, I will make a great nation from you. I wonder at what point Abraham began to go, God, are you crazy? Are are you paying attention to the everyday down here? My life sucks. I've got livestock to care for and no land of my own. The only parcel of land Abraham would own, the true measure of, of ancient Near Eastern wealth, was not the number of cattle or the number of camels or the number of sheep, but the amount of land you controlled. The only parcel of land Abraham owned in his life was his burial plot. He had to be at this stage, at 99, looking back going, what the flip? Why have I even tried? 
I thought I heard God all those years ago in Ur saying, move. And we moved, and then we moved again. And I have sojourned and, and built a life, and, and it keeps falling down around me. I am not where I want to be. And God keeps showing up saying, it's okay, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. You're my guy. And we're Abraham, a postmodern, secular, 21st century Westerner, he would have checked himself in for psychiatric observation at this point. But here in this passage, God, El Shaddai, the Lord of the mountains, the God visible on the horizon, the God a little bit far away, but close enough to see, El Shaddai comes comes to Abraham, comes to Abram. And he invites him into covenant yet again. He's invited him to go see the land that I have for you. He's invited him to covenant before. He will invite him to covenant again. But this middle covenant, this one means business because surgery is involved. There is this divine invitation in verses 1 and 2. And then Abraham, Abram responds. He falls face down. He worships. He, he has no words for El Shaddai when he comes to him. He simply collapses in the presence of this promise. And we can read into that any number of things. One possible read is that he simply worshipped he lifted his hands, he bowed down, he prostrated himself, and he gave himself in, in, in the abandonment and surrender of worship. And that's a, it's a good, healthy reading of the text. But I wonder if there's also in this falling face down before El Shaddai a kind of, what the flip? What am I, what am I doing here? How do I do this? How do I, how do I sustain this? I've, I've heard these problems. I'm an old man how, and, I, and I still have no heir. How do I keep listening to these promises? God, are you snookering me yet again? I have, I have heard your promises all my life and they haven't come true. And now you're coming to me again and saying, oh yeah, you'll be a great nation. Has Abraham just given up? Well, God makes a speech in verses 3b through 16. He talks to Abram about this covenant. And he says, look, there are three pieces to the covenant. You're going to get a new identity. And, and that's going to involve surgery. But you're also going to be faithful. There's going to be faithfulness involved here. I will be your God. You will be my people. We will work this out. And there's a promise made. Sarah will bear a child. 
yeah, Sarah's 90 years old. Yeah, she's old and crinkly. Yeah, most, most women don't have children at this age. But it's going to happen. I promise. Clarifying identity. Clarifying faithfulness. Clarifying the promise. God's at it again. And Abraham finds himself with a new name. No longer just exalted father. No longer just cool guy. Now the burden of being the father of many. Not just exalted in his own right, but now a patriarch in name, if not yet in fact. God has, has transformed Abram to Abraham and has said your life's mission is now no longer about yourself, no longer about your exaltation, no longer about you being the champion of your own narrative. It's about you making sure there's a legacy. Richard Rohr talks about the two journeys that men in Western society make in their spiritual lives. The first journey is the journey of John the Son of Thunder. We rage and we storm and we take and we possess and we are successful at all costs. We make it happen. Somewhere between 45 and 55, that gets old. And we have a decision to make. We either keep storming and we buy, you know, the red sports car and we trade in our first wife for the trophy wife and we on and on and on. Or we shift and we say that those were good days, but these days are now about being John the beloved disciple. No longer the son of thunder, but the beloved one who gives, who's generative, who doesn't make things happen by sheer force of will, but who blesses and loves and nourishes that which is to come. Every man in this room has that choice to make at some point in our lives. And all the women in this room have to deal with those choices. Life's tough. But that's what's happening to Abraham here. No longer just the exalted father. No longer the guy in charge who has frankly failed at being in charge pretty spectacularly. The exalted father thing had to kind of taste funny in his mouth most days. Now, the father of many nations. Legacy. Now we're serious about leaving behind good in the world. God makes that speech, brings that covenant at a point in time of Abram's great failures. Imagine that, that God 
would dare come to us in our failures and say, yep, I'm still your God. You're still my people. God speaks in times of failures. But what does He say to us when we mess up? Well, if you're a Yankee, too bad. Uh, you got it coming. Uh, if at first you don't succeed, failure may in fact be your style. And if you're a Yankee, I hope it is. Um, but God speaks up when we mess up. Failure is not just a malady of exuberance of youth. Failure is not just our capacity to try to run through a wall in our 20s and 30s and 40s. Failure is an ongoing thing. God meets us in the thin places of our failures. In those moments when heaven and earth meet, it's not because we've been so incredibly successful that God says, oh, you deserve a visit with me. It's because we have so utterly messed up that God sneaks back into our lives and says, hang in there. And He points from the past to the future. Instead of looking back at the exalted father Abraham and saying, your name's exalted father, but you've really made a crock of it. He points ahead, God does. And He says, you're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to leave a legacy. Hang in there. Keep at it. Work at it. Make it happen. He's going to establish a greater purpose in Abraham's life. From, from the quest for land and power and wealth to, to legacy. And the failure that is to come with Lot, his nephew, on the way back from all of that, he runs into a guy named Melchizedek, a priest king of a city up on a hill that would someday be named Jerusalem. And Abraham gives him a tenth of everything Abraham owns. Because the stuff no longer matters. The legacy matters. And when God speaks to us in that thin place, He's establishing greater purpose. And He's third, calling us to community. He's reminding Abraham, you are not a wandering Bedouin all by yourself. You live in a great community of people and you will form a great community. You're not alone. You don't have to make decisions alone. You don't have to be fearful about being alone. These, these things all conspire together in Abraham's life to what we today as Christians call grace. God's unconditional love poured out on each of us. Grace in all things is what God is saying in this covenant. Yes, exalted Father, you have failed repeatedly and very recently. I still love you. I still care about you. 
It's not tied up in you're winning the gold medal of being a great Bedouin. You've, you haven't even won the silver medal, Abram. So we're going to hit the reset button. And here's a new way forward. Grace, not success. You know, we're a pretty middle class, pretty put together group of people. But here's the secret of Genesis 17. God speaks to us through faith, not our successes. We're a pretty successful bunch on the whole in business, in relationships, in education. None of that. Not any of that brings us closer to God. God brings us closer to God. Grace brings us closer to God. Because God keeps His promises. So this morning, some things for us to think about. The novelist and theologian Walter Langeron writes, I'm convinced we are not called upon to succeed at anything. I love that quote. (laughs) We are called upon to love. Which is to say, we are called upon to fail. Both vigorously and joyfully. Now, I don't know about you, but nowhere in my every two and a half year job evaluation with the bishop (laughs) are failures discussed in positive language. (laughs) But I want to suggest to us that it's in our failures that we hear God the loudest and the best. It's when we've given up on our notion of success and allowed God to speak into our lives that we hear Him. And so we are called upon to fail vigorously and joyfully. So my question for you this morning is how well are you failing? How how well are you failing? Are you... Are you able to live in hopeful optimism that the future will be better in the past? Not because you can engineer it, you congregation of failures, (laughs) but because God is at work. That's the gospel in this passage. That's the good news. It wasn't up to Abraham to exalt himself. It's up to God to take this infertile couple and build a legacy. Now, how God does that, I, I don't know. I, miss, I must have missed that day at seminary. Failed again. But this I know. God's at work. Not because we're successful, but because God is God. And we're not. So how do we live in hopeful optimism that the future will be better because God's at work? How do we live with growing clarity about God's call on our lives? Abraham thought he was exalted father. He was, he's the guy. He's made. He's, he's Abram. He's pretty good stuff. No, actually, you're here to leave a legacy. You're here to leave it all behind. 
You're here to finish well and leave it. How do we live with growing clarity about God's call in our lives? Do we live in genuine, faithful community, embracing our weaknesses as much as our strengths? We relate to each other in the church on the basis of our capacities, not our incapacities. We relate to each other keeping our failures under wraps, our weaknesses under wraps, our deficiencies hidden, our incompleteness and brokenness covered up, and present to each other our best selves. How to win friends and influence people. (laughs) Dale Carnegie 101. (laughs) When in reality, we are broken beyond belief. We live lives that are quietly ruined and we don't know what to do about it. And we are scared to death. I'm scared to death to let you see just how ugly and dark and broken my story is. Because for me to admit that my dad was a raging alcoholic and my mom was a crazy woman makes some of you think, hmm, well that explains him. (laughs) Now we know... Now we understand why you're just a little bit off. And it's terrifying for me to admit that to you. Because some of you are going to think less of me. I'm not exalted father. I'm trying to create legacy. Do we live in genuine faithful community that embraces each other in our weaknesses? Or do we just treat each other as silver medal winners? Do we live as if grace matters? We all like that theological term. Yeah, grace, wonderful thing, grace. Grace is good. Good stuff, Grace. But do we live as if it matters to our lives? Or do we keep striving to be more? Because if we're more, you'll like me more. If I'm better, you'll like me better. Or can we just be people who are saved? Literally, saved by grace. Leave it to that old pietist Brit, A.W. Tozer, who says, Christian theology teaches the doctrine of prevenient grace. Now, for all of you out there who are Wesleyan holiness folks and not as Anabaptist as I am, I get extra credit today for using a Wesleyan doctrine instead of an Anabaptist doctrine. Christian theology, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Tip your waitresses, two shows a night. Uh, Christian theology teaches the doctrine of prevenient grace, which briefly stated means this, that before a man or woman can seek God, God must first have sought the man or woman. God seeks us. 
we like to think that religion, that Christianity, that what we do and who we are is all about our search for God. Baloney. It's about God searching for us. It's about Him crying out and saying, hey, you no longer have to worry about exalting yourself. Leave a legacy. You no longer have to worry about being successful because you're not. Be faithful. You no longer have to worry about trying so hard to present such a perfect image that people will love you because you know what? I know all about you and still love you. God seeks us. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. We are not nearly as well put together as we would like to pretend that we are. Now, maybe that's just me being confessional and the rest of you really are well put together. But, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our pretenses to exaltation, God is at work in each of us trying to form a legacy. May it be so in our lives.